Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Taiwan is a country with a society and its own uh, problems and perceptions that are always affected by, but not overdetermined by, the relationship with China. The idea that being Taiwanese means being democratic is really socialized and institutionalized in Taiwan's national life. You're listening to the National Security Podcast. The show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Susan Dietz Henderson. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay respects to their elders past and present. Today we're going to be talking about the upcoming Taiwan elections. They're going to take place on the 13th of January and are arguably the most consequential for Taiwan since elections were first held almost 30 years ago and the most contested since 2000. Taiwan seems to be at an inflection point. The results will have implications not only for Taiwan's relationship with Beijing, but also, and I hope we can tease this out in our discussion today, how whoever is elected will manage increasingly challenging domestic, social and economic issues while prosecuting its foreign policy priorities in the current strategic environment. The election results will be watched more carefully than ever by Beijing, Washington, Canberra and the rest of the region. So to discuss all of this, I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Harrison and Professor Antonia Finade. Mark is a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the School of Social Science in the College of Arts, Law and Education at the University of Tasmania. Antonia is an honorary professorial fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, specialising in Chinese history. Welcome, Mark and Antonia. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Look, I might kick off with you, Mark, uh, if you wouldn't mind just providing us with an update on the state of play how each of the contenders is faring. I know there were some pretty interesting dynamics around how Taiwan arrived at the final list of candidates. It went from two to three to four briefly and now back to three. Um, so I just wondered how's it all, uh, uh, how are they all polling now? And, um, I know that the uh, predominant issue of the campaign is the relationship with Beijing, and I wondered if you could just give us uh, uh, your understanding of how they're differentiating themselves in that aspect of the campaign as well. Yeah, sure. So we have uh, three candidates. We have for the Democratic Progressive Party, Lai Qingde, who is the vice president at the moment. Uh, for the KMT or the Kuomintang, we have Hu Yui, who is the um, mayor of New Taipei City, which is the region on the other side of the river that used to be Taipei County, uh, and we have Ko Enzer for the uh, Taiwan People's Party. 
Um, so the DPP and the KMT are the two main parties, and the TPP, Kowenjo's party, is a, um, a new party, a minor party. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, Lai Qingde for the DPP is still tracking in the lead, um, and uh, there's a, been a surge uh, recently in the last couple of weeks for the KMT. Uh, whereas uh, the TPP's numbers have been drifting downwards um, in the last uh, couple of weeks or so. Uh, there was a, a moment where the, the, the three main parties and the, the independent candidate, uh, Terry Gore, the industrialist, uh, had to decide uh, who they would nominate as their vice presidential candidates and um, they had to put their names on the on the uh, to, to register to vote on November 24, and that led to a degree of, of drama in the political process. Um, but once, uh, and Terry Gore pulled out at that point, uh, but once the VP candidates and the presidential candidates were chosen, uh, that has sort of stabilised the campaign to a degree, and it's also tightened it up. Um, so with um, uh, the DPP and the KMT, their numbers have come together a little bit and the, T, uh, the TPP has um, drifted down in response. So at the moment, uh, Lai Qingde is still in the lead um, and the KMT is, um, has shored up its base with its vice presidential candidate and uh, is, is tracking better than they were earlier in the year and the TPP is um, not doing quite as well as they were a few weeks ago. Mm, I just I was going to ask about the running mates that each of them has chosen, and wondered if that's affected their appeal or not as we as we get into the the final weeks. Yeah, so for the KMT, um, Hoyo Yi is as I say the, the um, mayor of New Taipei City. He's chosen uh, chosen Jia uh, Kong uh, as his uh, vice presidential candidate. Uh, he's had a long his long long career in um, in politics uh, and in the media in Taiwan, going right back to the martial law period. Um, he's a he's a conservative um, political figure. Uh, he's uh, he's very committed to the Republic of China as a concept, um, and he he shores up the the so-called deep blue base of the KMT. Whereas Hoyo Yi is a more centrist candidate, and so that covers the base and a kind of and, and Hoyo Yi reaches to the centre a little bit. Uh, the Democratic Progressive Party's vice presidential candidate is Xiaobi Kim. Uh, who is very, very well known in Washington. She's the, has just finished as the uh, Taiwan government representative to the United States, but she's had a long and very diverse career in uh, Democratic Progressive Party politics going right back to the 1990s. And uh, the uh, Taiwan People's Party's vice presidential candidate is Cynthia Wu, and she um, is the daughter of uh, a billionaire and is educated in the United Kingdom um, and is an interesting figure as a um, not someone who you'd think would appeal to the South particularly, uh, certainly would appeal in Taipei. Uh, so it doesn't really help uh, Kerwinza and his um, uh, his campaign in the South, uh, but um, does bring um, a certain uh, a relatively young youth appeal. Uh, she's, she's in the mid-40s. Um, uh, um, but if you look at the numbers, it hasn't really given uh, uh, Cohen's a, a bump. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the uh, the lay of the VP candidates. Mm. And in terms of voter attitudes, as they're looking at the various issues that each is campaigning on, uh, Antonia, I wondered if you had some comments on what their respective advantages and vulnerabilities might be. Um, 
I know that, uh, you know, the, the cross-strait relationship is clearly a crucial element of the campaign uh, and this election, um, but there are a lot of domestic, economic and social issues playing into how voters are thinking too, uh, which uh, external observers don't necessarily uh, look at in, in much depth because we're all focused on the on the geostrategic issues at hand. So I wondered if you could uh, give us some thoughts on on how you see their their advantages and vulnerabilities uh, being exposed in this campaign. Yes, sure. Thanks, Susan. I'd just like to comment on the main candidates that I think that the, the three presidential candidates, an interesting aspect of them is that they are all from these local Taiwanese uh, backgrounds, uh, not even in the case of the, the KMT, which a party that has its organisations deep in early 20th century China, and we, we would expect a Chinese and mainland uh, origin candidate to have, to have emerged. Even there they have chosen someone with deep Taiwanese roots and that is a recognition by the party uh, of the changing nature of the electorate in Taiwan which just feels increasingly Taiwanese rather than uh, even in a minority clinging to a a primarily Chinese identity. So this Taiwanese-ness of the electorate, of course, also goes to the fact that Taiwan is a country with a society and its own uh, problems that and perceptions that are uh, always affected by but not overdetermined by the relationship with China. So if we look at what they are identifying as issues of interest, the economy, which is not in a good state, uh, is is at the top of the, the list. People do usually talk about the economy if they're asked about, you know, what's important in the election. But there's an interesting, the economy embraces uh, a lot of aspects of the society, including what sort of jobs are available, especially for young people. There is a high unemployment rate uh, among, you know, I think the 18 to 24-year-olds. The cost of housing is a major issue in Taiwan. It's quite interesting looking at Taiwan from the perspective of Australia because quite a few common problems uh, do emerge. But when you look at who is responding to uh, what in this uh, complex uh, issues of economy and indeed of national, uh, national security, we can see a bit of a gender difference. That is, in a long list of what should be at the, a priority for the contending parties, we see males slightly dominant, as we might sort of expect from the stereotype, in defence, national security, cross-strait relations, legal reform, and women slightly in the majority in a whole bunch of social security issues, including, you know, childcare, aged care, uh, jobs for youth, 
and so on. And this is important because women are very strong players in the political landscape in Taiwan. They come out in slightly greater numbers than men to vote. It's not a compulsory voting system. In slightly stronger numbers, I think, for every cohort up to the 60s or 70s. And they are major players in local politics. So there's a majority of women mayors, which are sort of like many governors in Taiwan. So we find the parties running policies that will speak directly to the women and their interests. And it is a feature of this campaign. And as you say, you know, the China-Taiwan relationship is dominant. The KMT's posters all run with, we don't want war, you know, peace on two sides of the straits. But in terms of how people vote, you know, they know that there are a lot of variables. Any additional thoughts from you, Mark, on that? Yeah, I think uh, that's uh, absolutely true. Um, uh, there's uh, issues around uh, uh, low wage growth, um, yeah, housing, uh, childcare, aged care, as, as Antonio said, uh, lots of domestic issues that people are concerned about and frustrated about. Um, and uh, there's been some fairly solid policy statements by the three main parties around uh, trying to deal with some of those those themes. Uh, the DPP has a strong um, public housing policy. They're aiming to build um, more public housing. Uh, the TPP has a, a, a taxation policy that looks at um, reducing uh, the taxation burden uh, for families with um, um, multiple children because uh, the birth rate in Taiwan is very low. Uh, and the KMT has a, a childcare policy uh, that, that's pretty solid. Um, energy is another area as well that uh, is perennial because uh, um, for Taiwan. Um, so Taiwan has uh, excessive subsidies for energy from the government. It's very expensive for the government. Uh, very difficult to challenge politically, um, as previous governments have, have learned to their cost. Uh, but uh, the KMT and the DPP in particular have zero carbon um, sort of goals to achieve, and they're, they're hoping to use that process to try and restructure the energy market. So it's a very substantive um, um, policies on, on, on all sides. Uh, there's also a lot of, of, of quite strident negative campaigning uh, that, that flies backwards and forwards. Uh, the DPP accused the KMT of uh, having close links to organised crime, um, and they, they're not afraid to, to make those accusations. The KMT accused the DPP of being a kind of new one-party state and, and being interested in, in surveillance and, and control of the, of the people. And um, so you get sort of multiple levels. You get some very aspirational messages, uh, but then below that you get these very, very strident uh, negative uh, campaign messages that the, the parties throw at each other. Mm, well, speaking of negative uh messaging, misinformation, disinformation. There are reports, obviously, uh, that we've all uh, seen of uh, such tactics emanating allegedly from the mainland to influence the election outcomes. And I wondered if uh, e either of you, perhaps Mark first, uh, could discuss the role uh, of disinformation uh, in the campaign and and maybe first specifically what those allegations and the evidence of, of interference from the, from Beijing has been. 
So uh, Beijing has always sought to influence uh, Taiwan's elections. If you go back to 1996 and the first um, democratic presidential election, uh, that was the third, so-called third Taiwan Strait crisis where they fired missiles and engaged in military exercises as an effort to, uh, to um, shape the outcome of the election very unsuccessfully, it has to be said. And more recently, uh, the accusations are that um, Beijing uh, uses social media, it uses um, Uh, it promotes stories uh, and, and, and uh, um, unsubstantiated accusations through uh, the social media and so on uh, to try and um, create division and a lack of trust in the democratic process. Um, the, the Taiwan government has a, a, an infrastructure to try and combat those sorts of activities uh, through um, uh, um, uh, Removing things from the internet to, to, they work very closely with social media companies to try and, uh, to suppress that sort of activity. Um, I'm not sure that you could point to an actual election outcome and argue in recent years that it has been swayed by uh, that sort of activity. I think if you look at elections in recent years, um, they, 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 they conducted in a very open and robust way. Uh, but I think, uh, social, the, the, the disinformation side of, of, The electoral process uh, creates a level of, of distrust and, and division in in the political system, and I think Beijing is hoping to leverage uh, that that feature of of Taiwan's democratic politics. It's not unique to Taiwan suffering that. Um, I suspect after the election, whatever the outcome of the election is, it'll be a, a more um, divided um, political landscape, especially with the legislature and. Um, There'll be, there may be many fruitful opportunities for Beijing to promote that sort of activity. If there's a, if the Democratic Progressive Party doesn't have a majority in the legislature, for example, that'll be a, a much more divided political landscape, and that will be a very fruitful um, landscape for Beijing in terms of trying to create a division where division might not necessarily really be organically there. Mm. Any additional thoughts from you, Antonio, on this? Well, I only know what I read in the news, Susan, but, um, you know, the, it, it is quite interesting in, in light of what Mark has just said about this sort of dis, the, the disruptive effects of these news within Taiwanese society, creating an atmosphere of uh, distrust and uncertainty. So the level of cyber attacks from China on Taiwan is a matter of record. I think it's something like you know, 15,000 per second cyber attacks uh, from uh, China in Taiwan. Uh, but interesting for me is the number of inquiries, judicial um, sort of legal inquiries into uh, relations uh, with China at this time. For example, 140. 41 uh, chefs have recently returned to Taiwan from China and they have been investigated because of subsidy on the Chinese side of their trips. So the question arises of whether they've been the recipients of junkets and will they, for that reason, you know, be inclined to spread, you know, local uh, information favourable to China as opposed to Taiwan uh, There are quite a lot of these inquiries going going on, which yes is is indeed uh, like likely to 
create this sort of sense of uncertainty within uh, Taiwan. It's not really easy place to be in terms of the relationship between the two places. So we have, you know, some quite blue, some quite KMT mayors who have recently on their own bat been going to China to try and rebuild uh, ties, economic and and cultural. It's quite difficult for uh, the the ruling party uh, coming up to the election to to manage these uh, sort of uh, relationships. Yeah, I would say that the it's a, it's a, it makes for a very confusing situation psychologically mm. as we head towards mm. the election. Well, um, I want to turn uh, to the cross-strait relationship post-election in a minute, but just a general, I wondered if I could have your general comments on um, on Taiwan's democratic processes, if you like. I mean, when we look at the region we're in, the Australia's region, there's sometimes concerned expressed, concerns expressed about democratic backsliding or the illiberal character of some regional democracies. How would you think Taiwan ranks as a democratic policy in terms of the quality of its processes and institutions and its respect for the sorts of freedoms that, you know, we we take for granted or we hold uh, in high uh, place in a high regard in Australia? Um, I, I would start and say that uh, I think there's a, there's a profound commitment in Taiwan to those uh, uh, to those features of, of Taiwan's democracy, um, because um, the democracy struggle was such a long one. So it goes right back to the beginning of the 20th century and to the Japanese colonial period. Um, it's, a, it's many, many, many decades of, of struggle by the Taiwanese to achieve democracy. Um, I think uh, there's uh, the, the idea that being Taiwanese means being democratic is really socialized and institutionalized in Taiwan's national life. And uh, so um, it, it's a, a very acute commitment. Uh, and I don't think there is a, a – it's also generational because there's plenty of people in in, uh, in Taiwan's public life who remember the authoritarian period, who grew up in the authoritarian period. And so for them, um, there's a very acute understanding of what is at stake uh, and there is no complacency. Um, I think uh, the the – how the authoritarian period is remembered and how it is spoken about can vary depending on where people sit in the on the political spectrum. Um, I think there's been a long process of, of uh, coming to terms with authoritarianism, really 30 years uh, of, since the end of martial law and so on, more than 30 years now. And uh, so it's been a very long process, but it's been an incredibly intense and foregrounded one. Um, um, just everywhere in Taiwan are reflections upon uh, the transition from authoritarianism to democracy. So uh, there's no complacency. I think in Australia we sometimes take it for granted a little bit and that uh, creates um, vulnerabilities. But for the Taiwanese in the main, um, absolutely not. It's very strong. If I could add to that, uh, Susan, I just find this to be a, a very admirable society from the way in which it has developed these strong institutions and reflects in an everyday way the the benefits of uh, an open uh, democratic society. So the first time I went to Taiwan was 
1979, I was doing my uh, PhD and it was a very unhappy place. That was the uh, year in which Taiwan uh, lost recognition from the United States uh, as the government of, as the seat of the government of China. It became an outsider in terms of the international uh, order. It is now recognised, of course, by very few countries. In in that year, a very uh, difficult and unhappy um, place. Going to Taiwan now, of course, you do have this shadow of war. You do have jet scrambling, but a wonderfully uh, easy, relaxed, open place to be. And I, I feel as though this is, you know, deeply grounded in their their ability to say what they want, to vote how they want, and to be supported in this by the institutions that have been put in place over the period since the 1980s. The actual, watching the actual political process is great. You know, the sort of talking from the stump on street corners, very, very interesting, engaging to see. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Well, it seems as if, as I said in my introduction, Taiwan is at an inflection point for, uh, you know, domestically as well as how it thinks about its identity to itself and how it uh, sits in in the global landscape. Um, so coming back to the uh, issue of cross-strait relations, given what Mark said in the in his in initial comments about uh, the positioning of the DPP at the moment, uh, you know, obviously if William Lai Qingde were to be uh, elected, this would be the third win in a row for the DPP. And uh, uh, notwithstanding his signalling that he'll continue Tsai Ing-wen's, shall we say, disciplined, non-confrontational stance on cross-strait relations and Taiwan's own status, shall we say, China will be worrying that this is entrenching a pro-independence government. So how do you think um, China's response will look like after the DPP win? Um, 
it's already demonstrated it's not averse to military intimidation and other forms of pressure, would it herald an escalation of that kind of pressure or even um, uh, measures that hasten its pace towards uh, unification? Um, so I think we can expect, uh, and I know that Canberra knows this, uh, the uh, the new government in Taiwan, whether it's a DPP government or not, um, to be tested by Beijing, um, both around the election and then certainly when the president is inaugurated, which is in May. There's quite a long gap between the election and the in- inauguration. So we could certainly expect some uh, drama, military activities, uh, perhaps uh, a new round of, of trade sanctions by Beijing against Taiwan. Um, and uh, Beijing will be trying to test the incoming government uh, and test their discipline, but they'll also be testing uh, governments around the world, including ours. Um, and to what extent um, a new government in Taiwan uh, has uh, the continuing support of the international system. So they'll be looking for any kind of change in rhetoric uh, from um, uh, from foreign governments as well as from the Taiwan government. Um, Lai Qingde certainly has a, a background uh, in the south uh, of Taiwan uh, in which uh, he's uh, more so he's associated with a less technocratic style of, of leadership than President Tsai. Uh, and so I, obviously Beijing would be very unhappy about him uh, becoming the president. Um, and so one one must assume that Beijing is, has war-gamed possible outcomes. Uh, war-gamed is probably not the, the ideal term to use, um, although it probably is true as well. Uh, and um, so I think the question for the international system is whether or not uh, uh, a DPP win uh, sort of tips Beijing into a different mode, as it were. Uh, so Beijing's is very opaque. It's very hard to know how they respond, uh, how they will respond. Um, but there are certainly plenty of examples where Beijing has made make, makes a decision, and that decision uh, can be extremely consequential, very, very significant. It might not be immediately obvious that they've actually made that decision, but it may become obvious through uh, next year that, in fact, they've decided that uh, they need to be dealing with Taiwan fundamentally differently, and uh, then they may go on a, on a much more challenging path uh, with respect to relations with Taiwan. But I think it, that may not be obvious um, uh, for some months. Um, I think part of the problem is uh, Beijing actually doesn't really understand Taiwan, I don't think particularly well, um, and there isn't really a pathway to unification that would create any kind of stability across the Taiwan Strait. Um, you know, there's a reason why no Chinese regime or mainland regime in history has ever fully governed Taiwan in the last uh, several hundred years. Uh, it just represents particular challenges. Uh, and uh, Taiwan has been on this pathway now for well over 100 years. Um, and so I think uh, Beijing is, is uh, it doesn't really have a way forward to achieve its, its singular goals. Um, and that creates a structural problem for the, the rest of the world to have to deal with. Mm, I I saw you nodding there, Antonia, when Mark was talking. Um, what are your thoughts about this? Uh, certainly, I can see that the uh, China will be using a, a DPP uh, victory as a as a certain signal to which it needs to respond. But I also feel that. They will look carefully at the actual results uh, 
and respond accordingly. If I imagine a media response, for example, I think it is very likely that what we will see in the elections is a DPP victory in the presidential election and KMT dominance in the legislatively, legislature, their, their parliament. So in that case, we will have a majority of KMT um, in the legislature with uh, a president trying to control that. I think the Chinese media will interpret that as a very weak result for the DPP. They will try to minimise its uh, significance and perhaps point to the fact that in the localities in uh, Taiwan there's a very strong uh, KMT, hence, you know, slightly blue uh, tendency within the country as a whole. Uh, so, yeah, media response is likely to massage uh, the results to uh, minimise the significance of this uh, third term for a DPP um, president. Uh, in fact, they will have to ignore the fact that all the presidential candidates on current showing are more or less likely to show the legacy of Tsai Ing-wen in their cross-straits policy. So any difference between the China-leaning side and the Taiwan independence-leaning side is being a little bit blurred and minimised by the fact that for the KMT now, the, the defence and deterrence are, you know, top of their, their list, you know, followed by dialogue. So it's not, you know, let's build trade relations first. They are all talking about defence and deterrence first, and that's very much the case across the, the board with the three of them. Uh, now the TPP leader has recently affirmed that he's basically on side with the uh, DPP, with the government, on cross-straits relations. I don't know if Mark has a comment to make about that. but um, Yeah, I think uh, uh, that's, that's all absolutely true. Um, you know, there's a complicated political dynamic between the, the national elections and local elections. The KMT, because of its history as a party state during the martial law period, has a tremendous sort of ground game as a legacy of that, so it can really operate very successfully at local level of local levels. Um, and yeah, it may be that at the in a this particular election where that becomes clear is uh, the DPP being successful in the presidency, but the KMT um, getting doing much better in the legislature than they've done in uh, in previous elections. Um, whether they'll get a majority, I think, is still uncertain. I think the the TPP, um, if uh, um, that's the third, the, the third Taiwan party. People's mm. Party, I think, because there's a party list component to the makeup of the legislature, they may get quite a few seats. So it may be that no party actually has a majority, and that the the Taiwan People's Party then becomes a kind of um, as a balance of power in the legislature. And I think this speaks to a much more complex domestic uh, political uh, landscape, uh, whatever the outcome. I think it's going to be much more complex. Um, the two elements that I, that I just I'd, uh, highlight, one is that I think, as, as Antonio said, it speaks to uh, um, 
the changes under President Tsai Ing-wen, that you know, the, the norms, as it were, of, of what is considered sensible cross-strait policy have really moved a long way from the previous president, Ma ying um, And so the idea of, oh yeah, deterrence, strengthening defense capacity, uh, strengthening the relationship with the United States, um, there are just sort of some now well-established sort of principles to how Taiwan conducts its foreign policy generally, but certainly with relations with the United States and, and with China. Um, and uh, the second point is, uh, if we move next year into a much more complex uh, and uh, uh, relatively less, um, uh, how would I describe it, um, uh, a more animated uh, domestic political scene, I think that'll take a lot of work uh, in, in Canberra and in other capitals around around the region to, to interpret and to understand and uh, to make sense of. Uh, I think uh, it won't be... Um, uh, it, you, you won't be able to say, well, this just speaks to Taiwan going in one simple direction or another. Um, it'll speak to a very complex internal political or domestic political dynamic. Australia's not well um, uh, um, skilled in, in really understanding a lot of this, this complexity. We don't have a lot of policy capacity in Australia for making sense of, of this very complex domestic politics. And so I think there's an argument that we need to um, skill up to interpret the the, uh, the travails of the domestic political scene uh, from whatever the outcome of the election will be. Mm. Well, in, in terms of uh, cross-strait relations and the potential for um, uh, um, there to be uh, uh, pressure from China um, to ensure that, that the discipline that we saw around Tsai Ing-wen's uh, attitude towards the independence question was uh, is maintained um, under Leitinger's presidency as well, um, and obviously Australia's policy stance on this question is to you know value the current status quo for all parties, especially in terms of preserving regional stability. Um, so we're you know in wrapping up, I I wondered given all that we've discussed about the domestic dynamics that are uh, quite complicated in Taiwan that perhaps external observers are not as appreciative um, as they should be and how it might become even more complicated as we move into this third DPP presidency. Um, I wondered as we wrap up if the both of you could give uh, me your final thoughts on where you see the main risks and opportunities for Australia once the results are clear. I might ask Antonia to go first. I think Australia has to bear in mind the regional complexities of the current situation, let alone the post-election uh, situation. There has been quite a lot of talk over the years about uh, Australia's position between China and the US. The realities are that a lot of Australia's other partners, Korea, Japan, South Korea, Japan, and you know the countries of Southeast Asia are all involved in different and complicated ways with uh, Taiwan, with each other, and uh, with China. And the uh, August uh, summit involving South Korea, Japan, and the USA. 
you know, made this complexity uh, very clear. So for Australia, I think it's never going to be uh, a case of, you know, whether they're going to have to make a judgment between Taiwan and China and their relations with China versus their sympathies with uh, Taiwan. They always will have to take into account the regional uh, relationships of with which we are anyway deeply embedded. Yeah, and I would uh, follow up and say um, that we talk a lot about Taiwan in Australia, uh, but we tend to talk about it as a question to do with the US alliance. Um, so the, the phrase that we always use is, would we join the United States in a war against China over Taiwan? Uh, so sometimes we forget that there's uh, 23 million people who live in Taiwan who um, will defend their island. And uh, so I think uh, we need to see beyond that sort of uh, bromide around um, treating Taiwan as, a, as, a, as an America problem uh, for us and understanding that uh, many of Taiwan's issues are actually ones that we share, uh, that it's part of a very complex uh, and, and changing configuration of, of regional relations and security questions, um, and that uh, we uh, can find ways to um, connect with the people of Taiwan, um, but also see beyond um, uh, the, the sort of simple questions around uh uh, whether this is um, a question about our relationship with the United States or not. Uh, so I think uh, we, we, because we, we frame it very much in terms of the alliance, we tend not to see opportunities uh, that may be there, um, and we could certainly mobilise those more effectively. I think there is a lot of actual interesting activity going on in Australia in terms of people-to-people -people relations with, with Taiwan. Um, but ultimately, to see Taiwan as a place in itself and to see the bilateral relationship as a valuable one in itself is actually a pathway to seeing all of our relations uh, in a more complex and, and nuanced way. And so that's certainly what I'd be, be calling for, um, to think about values, to think about culture, to think about history. All of those different features which are really meaningful for the people of Taiwan are also meaningful for us. Um, and there's lots of connections there that we can make, which helps us see all of our relations in a, in a more complex and deeper way. Well, thanks very much for, for those closing thoughts from the both of you. And thank you very much for this fascinating and very enlightening discussion. Thank you, Susan. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.